There are three goals for aging. The first goal in aging is not dying. The second one is not getting sick or not having a disease. But that's not enough. With aging, everyone should respect these first two goals in addition to the third, which is being as fit and healthy as possible. That's Dr. Robert Friedland. He's a clinical and research neurologist and a professor of neurology at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. He led the National African-American Alzheimer's Disease Health Literacy Program, and he's authored or co-authored over 200 scientific publications and has had over $1 million of research funding to support his work from 1985 to 2013. During our stop in Louisville, we visited with Dr. Friedland and his wife, Shivani Nandi. In this episode of the My Alzheimer's Story Project podcast, Dr. Friedland shares his thoughts on the value of storytelling, the importance of diet, as well as his research on the impact gut bacteria has on our brain health and even our longevity. It's not the same to be alive, that's the first goal, and not have a disease, that's the second goal, that's good. But you can be 80 and not have a disease and be in bad shape. You can have no exercise tolerance, you can be overweight, you can have a poor diet and not be physically active. The quality of aging is related to how fit and how you've managed these lifestyle factors. And everybody who's, let's say, 85, they're going to be exposed to bacteria that cause pneumonia. Whether they get sick is going to depend on their overall health. And whether they do get pneumonia, whether they die or not, is dependent not only on the bacteria. You can't name, you can't blame the bacteria for everything. So even Streptococcus pneumoniae, which is a leading cause of pneumonia, is present in many healthy people. So people who get pneumonia, it's not like, oh, they got this germ and it made me sick. It's a question of how the germ interacts with your whole body homeostatic or molecular maintenance mechanisms. And when that happens, the healthier you are, the more likely you are to either not get pneumonia or not die from it. It's a critical matter and it's related to diet and exercise. And this is a, not an easy concept to explain to people. A lot of people think, well, I'm 70 and I'm not sick and I'm, you know, I'm not likely to get this or that. So why should I exercise? Or why should I change my diet? Everything in moderation. That's wrong. I got patients who used to smoke four packs a day. Now they only smoke one, so that's okay. Or they used to be 380. Now they're down to 280. That's good. Well, that's not. Right? So they used to eat bacon five times a week. Now they eat three times a week. So it's not necessarily enough. Probably one of the most frequently asked questions about Alzheimer's disease is, what causes it? The short answer is that scientists are not 100% sure about what causes Alzheimer's. According to the National Institute of Aging, there are many factors that increase risk. Like many people who've lost a loved one to Alzheimer's, there's always the question in the back of our minds, will this be my fate? More specifically, what role do genes play in my risk for getting some form of dementia? For 99% of cases, Alzheimer's disease is not caused by a gene. There are important genetic factors that influence risk, but they're not causative. It's only 1% where there is a distinctly causative, autosomal dominant, highly penetrant gene. In the other cases, there must be some environmental factor 
which acts in connection with genes, with these risk factor genes to cause the disease. So I'm interested in discovering what those environmental factors might be. And we have evidence that there are important triggers that are contained in intestinal bacteria, which are related to lifestyle and diet, which can influence the pathology in several important ways involving the molecular mechanisms of the disease in the brain. I believe the risk can be lowered by following certain uh, recommendations about lifestyle measures. I recommend a life from childhood to later age with high levels of physical, mental activity, social participation, family support, low-fat, high-fiber diet, avoidance of head injury, smoking, hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. And it hasn't been proven with a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized trial that this is effective. However, there's considerable evidence from animals and humans that these are reasonable recommendations. And I'd be happy to review the evidence that this is uh, important. It's pretty common knowledge today that what's healthy for your heart is healthy for your brain. On the journey to optimize my own family's health, I read books like Blue Zones, Nine Lessons for Living Longer from the People Who Have Lived the Longest by Dan Buettner. And in this book, Buettner talks about a version of the Mediterranean diet that hails from Greece. So I asked Dr. Friedland why this particular diet, the Mediterranean diet, promotes a healthy brain and longevity. Well, the Mediterranean diet has lots of fruit and vegetables and not as much meat as, let's say, the traditional American diet, particularly Brown rice has five times more fiber than white rice, and a 16-ounce steak has zero fiber. And this influences the bacteria in the gut, which produces more organisms that eat fiber, that make short-chain fatty acids, which serve to diminish inflammation. And inflammation is a component of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, heart disease, and stroke. So it's a reasonably wise policy. Now that we've identified specific high-fiber, low-fat foods, we wanted to know more about Dr. Friedland's research on gut biome and why he's so enthusiastic about that army of bugs in our stomach. Our work suggests that these intestinal bacteria make certain products that can be pathogenic or disease-causing. And other people have shown that for both Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, the intestinal bacteria are necessary for creating the disease in transgenic mice. So these are animals that have human genes and they get features of the disease. But if they don't have these bacteria, they don't get sick in the same way, which is really quite profound observation. Differences in the intestinal bacteria in Alzheimer patients and Parkinson patients have been found, which may be a key to how the disease is being created. The beautiful part about that is that it's very hard to change human genes. It's possible, but it's very difficult, especially when we're talking about brain diseases. However, the genes for bacteria in the gut, there are about a hundred times more of them than there are human genes. And we can change the bacterial genes in a period of one to two weeks by changing diet. And there are a whole range of other ways in which these organisms can be changed. So we are working on developing methods 
to influence the intestinal bacteria to affect the way they participate in the disease process in Alzheimer's and related diseases. So, in a matter of weeks, we could make adjustments to our diet, change our bacterial genes, and positively impact the health of our mind and body. If you want to know more about why researchers are encouraged by this connection between our gut bacteria and brain diseases, we've included a recent article from Nature Magazine in the show notes that features some of Dr. Friedland's research on this topic. According to the World Health Organization, today there are over 50 million people worldwide who are living with some form of dementia. And we wanted to know, is there anywhere on the planet today that isn't impacted by this disease? And if so, what could we learn? Dementia and Alzheimer's disease, of course, everywhere. However, it's less common in Africans. We were working in the Kikuyu in the center of Kenya. That was in the 1990s for six years. This led to the African-American Health Literacy Project, which was initiated because I thought there are these potentially modifiable risk factors. So people need to know the risk of getting Alzheimer's disease is not one's fate. It's not inevitable and there is something people can do to lower their risk, particularly in the African-American community. It's a very interesting and important observation that's been made by uh, particularly researchers in Indianapolis and Ibadan, Nigeria. And we've also studied this in Kenya. That is, the disease is less common in elderly Africans. However, it's more common in aged African-Americans. This is similar to heart disease, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, stroke, and Alzheimer's disease. These are all less common in elderly people in Africa. And I know Africa is a big continent, so it's quite complicated, but this is important to uh, realize. In African-Americans, all these things are more common, more common compared to white people and much more common compared to Africans. And the difference is almost certainly not because of genes. It's because of lifestyle measures which involve physical activity, obesity, and particularly diet. So the Africans we studied have a very low-fat diet and a very high amount of fiber in fruit and vegetables, yams and sweet potatoes, and beans. African Americans, on the other hand, have a high-fat diet and relatively low consumption of these high-fiber foods and this may be responsible for that difference. The traditional African-American diet is not good for people's health. And uh, I thought the comparison to the disease status of people in Africa would be important for people in the United States to know so they can make informed changes about what they should do. So with the support of drug companies, we initiated an African-American health literacy program based on black churches to inform the public about what they um, should do. Just for example, one uh, 75-year-old man we worked with in Kenya was the former dean of the medical school in Nairobi. He said when he was a boy, he ate meat perhaps twice a year, only on celebrations. And when he was in medical school, he had a patient with a heart attack, and everybody went to see this because it, was, it just didn't happen to have a myocardial infarction at that time. It didn't happen very often. And these differences are almost certainly because of lifestyle measures such as diet. 
Throughout the Miles road trip and during our conversations with experts like Dr. Friedland, it became clear that the notion of solving the Alzheimer's crisis is much more than simply adjusting our diet or waiting on science to produce a quote-unquote cure. So as education helps to promote brain health through prevention, we also need to take an honest look at the evolving role of big pharma as well as the billions of dollars in research to find out how we can all work more efficiently toward a much-needed, holistic approach to ending the Alzheimer's and dementia crisis. From an academic point of view, a big problem is the field has been monopolized by a group of researchers who have this amyloid hypothesis, which is basically fraudulent. I say that because it doesn't explain how the disease starts. It doesn't explain why one person has it and another person doesn't. We are deluded into thinking these risk factors, particularly apolipoprotein E, epsilon 4 allele or gene, that this is responsible for the disease, but it's not causing it because many people, as many as 40% of people who have two copies of this gene do not have the disease if they live to be 80 years of age. So there's something else going on. And the drug companies are so desperate to make money, they'll pursue something with relatively little evidence. So they've been on this amyloid hypothesis bandwagon for the past 20 years, and they've pursued literally billions of dollars of research on failed trials. When I propose to various companies, including nutritional companies, food companies, and drug companies, supporting the work I do on the gut bacteria, they ask me, will I get them a drug to market within three years? I say, no. So they're not interested. They'd rather spend literally $1.5 billion, like Lilly spent on recent failed trial, $1.5 billion on something that doesn't work. Would they like to look at a new avenue or some different approach? Not if they can't make money within three years. Another company years ago created an Alzheimer lab. They thought this is an important area. They're going to invest in that. They created a laboratory and they filled it with scientists and equipment. And after three years, they hadn't had a drug, so they closed it. There's a lack of commitment to long-term research on the part of the pharmaceutical industry. Or support for the African-American Health Literacy Project came about in the 90s because they had a new Alzheimer drug. So they wanted to fund their new Alzheimer drug. Now that they don't have a new Alzheimer drug, they're not interested in community education. Eating fish is good. The problem with fish is it's not owned by Pfizer. If Pfizer owned fish and they could make money if people ate more fish, we'd see ads on television and I'd have a pen, a pen in my pocket that said, eat fish, you know, and the, 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 the idea that eating fish is good for you would be enhanced. Nobody's going to do that. You can't put a price on good health. And that's certainly part of the problem with our healthcare system today. We've been groomed for the quick fix, a pill to make it all better. And with a disease like Alzheimer's, it's important to take the time to understand the complexities and nuances of each patient's journey if we're truly sincere about providing adequate care. As we look toward a future dependent on precision medicine, Processing patient stories will be an integral part of this complex prescription. To give a, a prescription to a patient takes 30 seconds or less. To explain, you got to eat less meat. 
how do I do that with somebody who's used to having bacon for breakfast every day? I can't just say, don't eat bacon. For, I can't just say that. I got to explain. So if I'm doing it, if I have time, which I spend as much time as needed with my patients, I tell them, I understand you have a granddaughter. How old is she? And then undoubtedly the patient will smile and say, she's 13. Let's say she's 13. I say, well, do you want to be here when she graduates from high school? And he'll say, of course. I said, well, if you want to, you know, your chances of living that long, considering so-and-so-and-so-and-so about your lifestyle, would be a lot better if you just didn't eat bacon anymore and ate this, 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 this. Do you want her to go to graduate from high school thinking, I wish my grandfather could be here? So that takes, like, time for which we're really, we're basically not paid. And it doesn't help. It makes it harder for us to see patients, but this is what has to be done. And sharing these stories is very important. The doctor has to have time to share the story. In our short seven-city road trip, we captured many interesting stories. There were several shared experiences, but each person's Alzheimer's and dementia story is truly unique. And it's the individual nuances that help experts like Dr. Friedland understand his patients and the disease a little better. My first story would be my grandfather who went looking for something in his closet. He must have been 80. And he went looking with a match and caused a fire. And then later he tried to jump out of the window and threatened my mother with a knife. And he had to be uh, put in an institution. He may have had Alzheimer's disease. I had a man who came uh, with his wife. She had it She'd wake up in the middle of the night and kick him out of bed. She'd get out of my bed. What are you doing in my bed? And they've been married for 60 years. So this caused him significant stress. And what could I do to help him? All I can do is I could be there and listen. I hurt my ankle playing tennis. I went to see the orthopedist. And all he wanted to know was where it hurt and tell me what to do. He didn't want to know how I hurt my ankle. And I was shocked at how angry I was. To him, it's just another ankle, but to me, it's, I only have two of them, so it's important. Stories are a critical element of the disease. But the reason that stories are so important is that humans evolved with the capacity of exchanging information through stories. Because we've only had iPhones for a few years, and we've only had books for several hundred years. And for most all of human history, most all people were illiterate. It's only in the past, in the 20th century, where a large part of the population can read. So most of the time, for the last 100,000 years of human life, we exchanged information through stories. And this is the most powerful way of explaining. Dementia and Alzheimer's aren't going away anytime soon. But as doctors, patients, and families continue to speak more candidly about their experiences and voice their concerns and frustrations, the way we approach care and a potential cure will improve. And after speaking with Dr. Friedland, I can at least rest a little easier knowing that just because my dad died from the disease, I'm not necessarily doomed to the same fate. Genes do play a role, but a very small one. The Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences had a consensus conference on Alzheimer risk, and they determined that Nothing can be recommended to the public to lower your risk because there's no randomized controlled trial, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial has never been done. 
and the evidence is not sufficient. And I responded to that with Shivani's help in a paper. We pointed out that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That's a quote from Carl Sagan, but that's the truth. So we proposed, if they are upset that there's not evidence for this, we proposed a study. We called it a modest proposal in regard to the modest proposal of Jonathan Swift published in 1729. We're going to do a study of Alzheimer's disease. We're going to take 40,000 healthy people age 20. We're going to follow them for 40 years. We're going to divide them into four groups with high and low levels of physical activity, high and low levels of fat intake, high and low levels of hypertension control and smoking. We're going to make one of the groups I think it was 5,000 people are going to have to smoke regularly for 40 years. And the point of this is you can't do it for obvious reasons. Such a study can't be done. So in the absence of the evidence that might come from such a study, that's not a reason why you shouldn't recommend people, okay, you want to lower Alzheimer's risk, don't smoke, don't have head injuries, have a low-fat diet with a lot of fiber, Try to avoid the risk factors for diabetes. If you have hypertension, control it and be physically and mentally active throughout life, not only in childhood. And there is no way any of these recommendations could be bad for you. It's also important to point out that the incidence and prevalence of Alzheimer's disease is declining around the world in both Europe and North America and Asia. This is despite the fact that the disease is actually more common because there are more old people. But if you correct for the fact that there are more old people, among old people, there's less Alzheimer's disease. And the reason for that cannot be genetic. So it's most likely because of lifestyle factors that people are healthier, we eat a healthier diet, we have more physical activity, we have better control of hypertension and diabetes than we had before. And this is evidence that these lifestyle recommendations are uh, important. So while some may be deterred by the absence of specific data supporting a rigorous preventative course of action, we can't ignore the growing amount of evidence that clearly supports the myriad benefits of an active lifestyle and healthier diet. Thank you, Dr. Robert Friedland and Shivani Nandi for spending time with us on the Miles Road Trip and for sharing your stories. We'd also like to thank Danny Hutcherson for hosting all of our conversations in Louisville. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Friedland's work with gut bacteria or the African-American Health Literacy Program, we've included links in the show notes to some of his research, articles mentioned in this episode, as well as a few websites so you can dive deeper into this topic. And if you'd like to support this podcast and our project, please visit myalzheimers.net. Today's program was mixed by Woody Woodhall. This podcast is a production of Joe Digital Inc. and the My Alzheimer's Story Project raising awareness and helping Alzheimer's research one story at a time. I'm Zach Jordan. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the My Alzheimer's Story Project Podcast.